Let's, uh, let's bow our heads as we uh, come to God's word this morning. Father, I, I thank you for your word, Lord. Uh, it is living, it's active, it's sharper than a double-edged sword, Lord. It, it pierces uh, bone and marrow, Lord. It, it, it pierces through our minds and it pierces through our heart and pierces through our soul and, and shines light on, on the darkest, deepest parts of our lives, Lord. And we recognize that, Lord. We recognize that you always have a purpose for your word, that it never comes back without, without doing what you have set forth for it, Lord. And my prayer this morning is, Lord, that you would have your way with what you want us to hear from your word this morning, Lord. Uh, Father, if there's words that I prepared that are not of you, Lord, I pray that you would cause them to fall off the page, Lord. Father, I pray that you'd replace them with what you want for our church this morning, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to have uh, humble, teachable hearts this morning, Lord, uh, submitted to you, Lord. So we thank you for your word. We love your word, Lord, as the written word points us to the living word, Jesus Christ. And I just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So hey, as, as I said, Matt and Lisa, they snuck off for the first bit of spring break to have a couple family days. Um, so they'll be back uh, sometime during the week and uh, back here for next Sunday. Actually, Julie and I, we get to sneak away for next Sunday. We're taking off for the last half of spring break. Um, so it's supposed to be a holiday, except we're working on our camper to next weekend to get ready for summer holidays. So I work for a holiday, right? So hey, um, when I've been teaching, we've been working through the book of James uh, kind of s- randomly and slowly over the last six months or something like that, and we come to chapter four today. So far, we've been through one, two, and three, and, and, and James has, has, we can't hide in James. I don't know about you guys, but I can't hide in James. He, he pins me to the wall. Uh, the last time we were in chapter three, and he talked about our tongues a lot about the speech, how we, how we speak, how we interact with one another, how sometimes we, we praise God with our tongue and in the next breath we tear down those who are made in his likeness. And, and he, he really nails us on that. The, the last bit of chapter three, <coughs> I'll just read it before we get into chapter four. And he talks about the difference between godly wisdom and wisdom of the world Starting in verse 13 of chapter 3, who is wise and understanding among you, among you? By his good conduct, let him show works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So he, he, he launches into chapter four from that great statement, and a harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. So we have to sometimes remember that the chapter breaks were added later, right? This was a letter written. 
So he goes from, and the harvest of righteousness is shown in peace by those who make peace. And then he says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Quarrels and fighting. You know, if you were to read the King James, it talks about fights and wars. Uh, it, it, it's, it's like, you know how a fight starts as something small and it grows. All, the, all wars, they start as a small squabble, don't they? They start as something small and it grows and it grows and intensifies and becomes nations p- pitched against nations, mankind against mankind. And he says, what causes these quarrels? And he <coughs> fights among you. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? It's interesting, I, I looked up the, the Greek word that they use for passions here. It can be translated passions or pleasure or lust or false to the truth. And it's the Greek word hedon, H-E-D-O-N-E. I probably pronounced it wrong. But what I thought was interesting is as soon as I heard that word, it reminded me of an English word, hedonism. And if you look up the word hedonism, All you need to do is Google it, and it gives you the root where it came from. And it came directly from the Greek word hedon. And hedonism is a school of thought that argues that pleasure is the primary or or the most important intrinsic good. In very simple terms, a hedonist strives to maximize net pleasure minus the pain. It's an ethical theory that pleasure in the sense of satisfaction or desires, is the highest good and the proper aim in life. I thought it very interesting that that's the Greek word that's used here by James, the same word that we use for hedonism. That idea of going out, going after our lust, whatever feels good, we go and, to go and do it with as little pain as possible. He says that's the root of our wars and tensions between ourselves. He's writing this book. When he says to you, you have to remember in chapter one, he was writing to these, these churches, the 12 churches of the dispersion, it says in chapter one, verse one. He's writing that to us, to the church. What causes the wars among us? What causes the fights? Is it not that our lusts and our passions and our pleasures are at war within, within us? I don't know about you guys, but my experience is that when I, when I yield to these short-term things, I have very short-term pleasure. I had a conversation with someone this morning, and we were talking about this. And he said, you know, I have, I've had the cars, I've had the houses, I had the beautiful wife, I had the kids, I had all this stuff, all this stuff that looked good on the outside that I was going after, chasing after. And he said, it didn't bring me joy and happiness. It was temporal. It was passing. It's his relationship with Jesus Christ that's bringing joy and happiness in the man's life today. Not the things that come and go. So often my and your your my passions and lusts really resonate with that last bit of chapter three about worldly wisdom, these things that they look wise in the things of the world. And three fourteen, but if you have bitter jealousy, selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but earthly, 
unspiritual, demonic, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there'll be disorder and vile practice. Look at that list, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, boasting false truth, they're earthly, demonic, cause disorder and vile practice. The result is that we, as people, we tend to desire after things that we don't have. Reach out for what's more than what God has in his perfect plan for us. We lust and we covet. One one commentator summed it up as this, in searching for happiness without God breeds calamity and disappointment. In fact, it's referred to as murder here. You'll remember in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, Jesus, <coughs> Jesus says, you have heard, it was said of these of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I, this is Jesus speaking, say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The idea is that when we, when we, condemn our brother when we hate our brother, bring evil thoughts and intentions, we've, co- we've, caused, we've committed murder in our hearts. So we fight and we clamor for position and wealth and temporal things and often miss out on what we, God has in store for us. He goes on and he says, You do not have because you do not ask. So often we wonder why things in our lives haven't been sorted out. Why we don't have maybe our needs. Are they our needs or are they our wants? I have to ask myself. It's a simple and profound statement, is it not? You do not have because you do not ask. In John 16, 24, he says, until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be made full. I immediately look at this and I say, are we coming to the Lord in prayer and, and bringing our needs before him? Are we setting our plans in, as we search the Lord or are we just going out and doing and expecting him to follow up and awake. You know, we can trust God with our plans and our needs and our wants. We have a God who has good intentions for us. We know the verse well in Jeremiah 29. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call on me Come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And Jesus said, I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and find Knock and it will be open unto you for everyone who receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks will be opened. What father among you, if his son gives you a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's a great promise that when we seek him, he has good things in mind for us. 
when we get to verse three of James four, he gets to the root of our asking. He says, you ask, sometimes, first he said, you, you don't have because you don't ask. Now he says, you have asked, but you did not receive, and then he says here why. Because you asked wrongly to spend it on your passions, and then he says, you adulterous people. It's a hard word to hear, isn't it, you adulterous people? I have to say and wonder what is our motive in asking and seeking the Lord? Are we asking to spend it on our lusts, on our hedon? One guy I was listening to as I was studying for this passage, he said, do we use the Lord as a genie in the lamp? I thought, oh. It reminded me of Aladdin. I realized Aladdin was milk. I remember when Aladdin came out. I think it's aging me because it came in 1992. But I remember as a kid, we went to the theater to go see Aladdin. And I, you know, the guy rubs the, and the genie comes out and grants you three wishes, right? And I actually remember my dad after he, sat us all down. What was good and what was wrong about that movie? And I thought it was so cheesy, but I understand so much more now what dad was getting at. But the idea here is how often don't we come to the Lord seeking a genie in the lantern? Oh Lord, please grant me my three wishes, my three desires. And we ask wrongly then, don't we? We're looking to spend it on what is temporal. Sometimes I look at the outward appearances. I don't know about you guys. Remember the prophet Samuel? The Lord said to him, we're gonna go and we're gonna anoint the new king and we're gonna go to the house of Jesse. And Jesse brought all his boys along in a row, right? Most of the boys actually, not quite all. And they all looked really great. They were strong and they were handsome and they had intelligence and smarts. And chap- chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we read, and when they, came, when they came through, he looked on Eliab, and Samuel thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. For the Lord sees not as the man sees. The, Lord does not, the man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Sometimes we don't, receive from the Lord because we ask amiss when we ask to spend it on ourselves, not for his glory. The word spend here is the same word that's used with the prodigal son when he blew the inheritance and wasted it. I'm reminded in 1 Corinthians, we're told that so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. What's our motives as we come to the Lord and seeking him for the things in our life? Are we asking the Lord (coughs) to provide so that our lives may glorify him? Or are we asking the Lord to provide to glorify ourselves? It's a tough word. We're called adulterers. I don't like that thought that I'm called an adulterer when I ask amiss. 
You know, in the Old Testament, that terminology is used a fair bit for the people of Israel as they wandered away from the Lord. It's called, he calls it adultery when his people turned away from him. You know, adultery is that wanting something physical and temporal for a short term. It's not wanting any commitment. It's not wanting any responsibility. No long-term care, no relationship, no support. It's short-term pleasure, so to speak, with no long-term commitment. You know, it's much like our culture, isn't it? We live in a pretty adulterous culture. Actually, literally adulterous in the sense of sexual adultery. As well as our, our, our pulled, torn ways that we live. So when we come before the Lord, are we coming asking the Lord that his, he would be glorified? That he would be exalted and lifted high in our lives? Are we coming asking about us? Goes on and says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend with the world yearns to make himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is no purpose, as Scripture says, he yearns earnestly over the spirit that he has made to dwell with us? Friendship. Friendship with the world he's talking about or friendship with God. You might remember when we were in 1 John, uh, he talk, uh, 1 John, or John spoke about walking in the light or walking in the darkness. Where have we set our aim? Where have we set our path, our goal? Are we heading towards the light of Jesus Christ or have we set our life into the shadows? Where do we want to be intimately acquainted? I recently read, you remember Pilgrim's Pro- Progress? I recently read Pilgrim's Progress. I actually read it to my daughter. And um, it was kind of fun because she didn't entirely get it, but she sort of got it. You know, the story there of Christian is he gets evangelized and he gives up everything and he heads out on the narrow path to the celestial city to receive a reward. And it's a beautiful allegory because it, it, it describes all these things that we struggle with in our lives. He fell into the mire and the muck and then he was tempted and this and that and the other and then there was the wide and easy road and then he kept on being, when he fell off track, the evangelist came back and pointed him back on the narrow road and eventually he got to one city and he got a, a coat of armor and, and him and he, he got a good buddy in the Lord and they made it to the celestial city and they were given robes and crowns. They set their aim on the prize, the goal, as Paul tells us to do. Living in Jesus Christ, putting our aim in the light, not in the darkness. Yeah, you know what? In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, he stumbled in the shadows a couple times, but was continually ushered back into the light and pointed to the light of Jesus Christ and set his course. That's what we're to do. Friendship has this idea of a sense of intimacy. And it's talking here that we cannot be intimate with the world. Yes, we are, we're kind of stuck in the world, aren't we? The physical sense of the world this stuff, but the systems of the world, the values of the world. We live in a world that takes what's right and calls it wrong and what's wrong and calls it right. 
Have we set our aim and our friendship? Are we intimate with that? I recognize that there's gonna be some level of acquaintance because we walk through this world and our feet get dusty as we walk in this world. We need to ask the Lord to cleanse our feet every day. But we are not to, to, to desire and lust after the ways of the world, the systems. It's not our political system that our hope is found in. It's not our judicial system. It's not our might. It's not our wealth. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Therefore, our friendship is, should be with God. Our desire for intimacy and to know well, we should be setting our aim as Christian did in Pilgrim's Progress to the end goal and keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. Think of the difference between the system of the world and the kingdom of God. The world is a system of bondage. God's kingdom is a kingdom of freedom. The world stands condemned. God extends grace. The world is dying, but God gives life. This world is temporal. It's all gonna pass away. God's kingdom is eternal. The world is evil. God is good. The world intends to destroy. God has plans for good for us, a hope and a future. John 10.10 says the thief, the devil comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And Jesus says, but I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. We can't have a desire to have friendship with both. It's like if you have a little rowboat beside the dock and you're gonna get in the rowboat and it's untied. And uh, you got one foot on the dock and one foot on the gunnel of the boat. It wants to do this. And you might even be able to hold it there for a little while if your legs are strong. And one little wave, one little bounce, a little boat goes by and the wake goes by and that boat goes sailing out and you go kersploosh. That's kind of the idea. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let's set our aim on God and be friends with him and I'd like, the world, I'd like to be an enemy of the world and a friend of God, Amen. We can't serve two masters. Jesus reminded us of that, did he not? Said wishing for one will essentially cause us to shun the other. There's no double agents in the kingdom of God. Can't be on both sides. I like what Spurgeon said. Man, if you have time, I read two incredible sermons from Charles Spurgeon on this passage that actually I wished I could have just taken up here and read them for you guys. They were that good. So if you have some time, look up Charles Spurgeon on James chapter four and there's some beautiful, beautiful messages that I cannot even begin to uh, put my words to. But he said, we cannot enjoy our heavenly father's smile till you are cleansed of your opposition to him. I thought, wow. I want to enjoy the smile of God my Father. In fact, you know, God desires to be friends with us. You might remember when we were in James chapter 2, verse 23, it describes Abraham as a friend of God. He desires to be a friend 
of us. In fact, the scripture says that he has put his spirit in us as a deposit. He lives in us. The Godhead lives inside us and therefore he is jealous of our affections. He yearns earnestly for his spirit that is within us. Friendship, intimacy. I love when we get to verse six, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those of us who have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and have walked in his grace and received his grace and mercy, he extends more. When we struggle with our mixed allegiances, he has grace to heal and restore us when we get back out of the water and climb back up on the solid dock, Christ the solid rock. Gives more grace. Get to verse seven, he says, submit yourselves therefore to God. (coughs) Sounds really easy to say, doesn't it? Submit yourselves to God. You know, when we actually submit ourselves to the Lord, when we yield our will to God's will, it allows us to walk in the promises that he has given us. It gives us freedom to access our Savior. What it actually really does is we reestablish order. All too often in our lives, we try to put ourselves back in the driver's seat. We try to become as a created being, we try to become above the creator. When we submit ourselves to God, we put that back into order. And we remember and we recognize and we acknowledge that God is God, he has created us. And we are his created beings. And through his mercy and grace, he has poured out his love on us. Spurgeon again said, Should not the creative be submissive to the creator to whom it owes its existence? Without whom it had never been and without whose continuous good pleasure it would at once cease to be. We are sustained by God. Held together in the palm of his hand. He has knit us together. So therefore as a Christian our place of submission should be The stool of repentance at the foot of the cross should be our favorite position as an informed Christian. That's another Spurgeon quote. The stool of repentance at the foot of the cross. The only place where forgiveness and grace is given as the the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from our unrighteousness. For the believer. If you don't know Jesus this morning, you say, what are you talking about? Submitting yourself to God is a wonderful thing. It's an incredible thing. When we talk about the blood of Jesus Christ, the reason we need the blood of Jesus Christ is because we are imperfect. And God requires perfect righteousness to enter his presence and to be with him for eternity. And submitting to Jesus Christ putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope in life and death and the life to come is found in Jesus Christ. 
In John chapter five, it says to those who've put their faith in him, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. Incredible promise. If you don't know Jesus Christ, I pray that you would seek him out. Seek him while he may be found, while you're in the land of the living. The psalmist talks about tasting and seeing the goodness of the Lord while in the land of the living. Our only hope is when we know the goodness of the Lord while in the land of the living. Once we're at the judgment seat, it's too late. We must put our faith in him before we pass on. Submit yourselves to God, therefore. Resist the devil and he will flee from you, James continues saying. Verse eight, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, he continues on with these great promises, does he not? Sometimes I've heard some of these promises kind of claimed, maybe I think a little bit wrongly. Sometimes I think people take their thumbs and they lay them over top of the words and they do this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Ooh, I like that. Yeah, draw, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Hey, that's pretty good too. But sometimes I think we miss the preceding and the following statements. And it's very important because these are great promises. It's an incredible promise. The first promise, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The devil will not have victory in your life. He will not have dominion over us. You know, even though he's going to tempt us, he's not going to have victory. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up under it. Jesus, our Savior, was tempted, and when he had been in submission to the Lord, and he responded with Scripture, You shall not test the Lord your God. It is written, it is written, and the devil left him. It's a great promise. Resist the devil and he will flee from you because greater is he that is in us, the spirit of God, than he who is in the world, the devil. And he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What a great promise. He will never leave us nor forsake us. The idea of drawing is to come into line with The NIV or the NLT says, come near to God and he will come near to you. I hung out on farms as a kid and on the back of the tractor, it's called the draw bar. That's where you hook the trailer on and it pulls it in a a direction, in a course, allows its purpose to happen. That's what happens when we draw near unto God. He never leaves us nor forsakes us. Sometimes we move away a little bit though. So I was reading in my studies this week, one guy, he, he had a note of a story of a, of a couple and they're driving along in their pickup truck with a bench seat. And they're, he's sitting driving on this side and she's sitting driving on this side and she says, oh, look at those sweet young couples sitting side by side. What happened to us? He always drives. And he turned to his wife and said, I never moved. It's actually a picture of in a way, of us and Jesus. We are Christ's bride. The church is his bride, and he is the bridegroom. He never moves away. 
But sometimes we allow our divided passions to draw us away. And we're called here to submit ourselves to the Lord once again. And he's going to lay out a formula, or so, a formula, so to speak, of what submission looks like. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. When he speaks of cleansing your hands, it's talking about our actions in life. The sin that we do as we move around life in our workplace, in our family, uh, all that stuff. The psalmist, when, when he was humble before the Lord, he said, oh Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is any wrong in my hands, He was asking the Lord to cleanse his hands, purify him from all righteousness. There's a great promise in 1 John chapter 1, 9 that many of us know well that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to <coughs> forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes our hands have a tendency to move towards idolatry. It's really easy in our culture especially, well, it was in any culture, we tend not to worship little things that we put on the shelf in our culture. They tended to do that back in, you know, the Philistines and all that stuff. Other cultures in our current world, they have little Buddhas and little funny fat things that they, that they worship that are made with their hands. In our culture, we tend very easily to worship our job or, or, or our, our, our bank account or, or our, our house. Maybe we worship our family sometimes more than the God who provided our family. You know, any idols, idolatry, they're idols of silver and gold, of wood and sticks, whatever it might be, the work of our human hands. They may have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes, but they don't see. They may have ears, but they do not hear. They may have noses, but no smell. They may have hands, but they have no feet. They, but they do not feel the feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throats. Those who make them will become like them. So do all who trust in them. The psalmist again. Where have we set our trust? Have we set our trust in the things that we have built and on our hands? Or have we set our trust in the Lord who created the provisions for us to live? The Lord does something really cool. He wants to cleanse our hands. Our job is to confess our sins and bring them before him. He wants to free our hands from the defilement of sin, to purify them from wickedness, to free them from guilt, to consecrate by cleansing, and to consecrate by dedication, and prepare them for war, to do war, the war that we do in this life, trying to walk in the light. So we're to have our hands cleansed. And our job in that is to confess and repent and turn and ask the Lord to help us in that. He reminds us that we're sinners. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. That's who we are.
We're sinners saved by the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. He says, purify your hearts. You know, our hearts often is the root, is it not, of the action of our hands. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the poor in heart, or pure in heart, for they shall see God. The only purification of our hearts comes with the work that Jesus Christ does. I, one of my, has become one of my favorite little chunks of scripture was in 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God and so we are. I love that. The reason why the world does not know us is that did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children and what we will be like has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. It's only Jesus' purity that can purify our hearts. Our hearts, our double-mindedness, our friendship with the world versus friendship with the God. We're not to be double-minded we're not to have our foot on the dock and a foot on the little rowboat. We don't want to be in the rowboat that gets tossed about. We want to be on the solid pier, the rock of Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but when I look at that, I have to ask myself, what sin issues is the Lord speaking to my heart and to your heart about? I don't know what it is. There's so many things in our lives that drive wedges between us and the Lord. We're called to submit ourselves and to come before him humbly and in impurity. I don't know what's going on in your lives. Is it fornication? Statistically, there's porn issues with people in this room. Maybe it's position. Maybe it's wealth. Maybe it's prayerlessness. Maybe it's something a little more subtle. Maybe it's in our finances, it's our wealth. The challenge for you and me is to bring it to the cross of Jesus Christ so that we may walk in those great promises. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near unto God and he will draw near unto you. He carries on about what our attitude ought to be about these issues in our lives. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We should be sorrowful for the wrongs that we've done. Our Savior has died in our stead. I've said it before and I'll say it again. When I realized what crucifixion was and that crucifixion is asphyxiation as you're hanging in Jesus case by nails through your hands and feet pulling up on that pain on that intense pain for every breath and I'm standing on his shoulders you're standing on his shoulders as he reaches up and pulls for a breath that is at a picture a small picture of the sacrifice as he died for your sins and for mine So we should come humbly. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We should come humbly before our God, should we not? 
as we said before, that he is God and we are not to exalt. To we, to, we often desire to be exalted as, as mankind, do we not? We want to be exalted, means to extol or be praised, acclaim, esteemed, to be put on a pedestal. The psalmist actually says in chapter 66 that self-exaltation is rebellion. But we are to exalt God, not ourselves. And you know what? It says in scripture that he will exalt us when we come in humility before him. I think of in Revelation chapter 19 is a great picture of how we will one day praise our God and what heaven will be like and how God is to be exalted. And after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immortality, who has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once again, they cried out, Hallelujah, and the smoke from her goes up forever and ever and the 24 elders and the living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated at the throne saying amen hallelujah and from the throne came a voice saying praise our God all you his servants all you who fear him small and great that's going to be incredible is it not remember how we said and we know that we are described as the bride of Christ and that Jesus is the bridegroom This is what it says for the last bit of that discourse. And then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Alleluia. For the Lord God, our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt. So we rejoice and exalt in him. And give him the glory. For the the, the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. And it was granted to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure. We will be exalted as God's people, as the bride of Christ. Just like in Pilgrim's Progress, when he arrived at the celestial city, he was given that white robe and a crown. He will exalt us. We are to exalt him. James carries on and he says, starting in verse 11, he carries on in a similar theme to earlier parts in the book about how it actually matters how we, how we talk and how we deal with and relate with, with God's people. He says, starting in verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The idea of speaking evil is to, to, to slander, to speak against, to incriminate, to speak badly, to tell lies. Sounds a lot like gossip. It also sounds like things that we can very easily find ourselves caught in. In 1 John chapter 4, it's very incriminating about how we speak evil sometimes about our brothers because he says if anyone loves God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Very tough statement to hear. But we're not to speak and pass judgment 
like eternal type condemnation against our brothers. We're not to incriminate our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Our job, I believe, is to be grace extenders. As Jesus has extended grace unto us, we are to extend grace unto others. Remember in Matthew when Peter came and he said, how many times should I forgive my brother? And Jesus said to forgive him 70 times, seven. Essentially, so many that you're gonna forget by the time that you gotta forgive him again to continue in forgiveness. It's not that we, there's never a time where something has to be addressed in someone's life. We know that Paul in, to the Corinthian church, he, he laid it out in the line. There was some brutal immorality going on and he actually expelled some people from the church but the idea was for restoration and repentance. It was not to pass judgment eternally and condemn that person. That is not for us. There is one lawgiver and judge. And you know what's so great about our lawgiver and judge, Jesus Christ, is he's not an earthly judge. Think of our judicial system, how messed up it is. You get a bunch of sinful, mixed up people, and they make laws. And they attempt to put a committee together to determine the intent and put a law, and make a law, okay? So now we have this law, and we think we know the intent of it. Now we have a judge who's supposed to uphold that law when an offense is brought before him. He tries, he's a sinful, messed up guy too, and he's trying to interpret a law that a committee of sinful, messed up people have put together and interpret the heart of that law and the letter of that law. And then we got the guy who's actually done the deed and he's got his lawyers trying to get him off the hook because trying to figure out the holes in the intent and the law we have a pretty messed up system, don't we? Not only that, you don't like what the first judge says, so then you go up, go up a level. You go to the next guy and the next guy, and pretty soon you're up in the Supreme Court. The difference is, is that when Jesus, Jesus Christ, he's our lawgiver and he's our judge, and he's all-knowing. He's, he has ordained the laws, and since he's the judge, he perfectly understands the nuances and the intent of the law. Not only that, he has revealed to us how he rules. When we come before him, it's not I plead not guilty that gets us off and a smart lawyer. It's when we come before him and say, Yes, I, I recognize I am a sinner. I've put my faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and rely on his grace and mercy, and the verdict is saved rather than destroyed. We have a perfect judge, a perfect lawgiver, who perfectly upholds his law and perfectly knows all the circumstances of everyone who comes before, before him. extends mercy and grace to those who have put his faith in Jesus Christ. Our God is a God of salvation and to God the Lord belongs deliverance from death. I love our lawgiver and judge who has extended grace and mercy to you and I. I'll try to finish up quickly here. He changes gears a little bit here. Actually, that sounds more like loading a shotgun. 
Anyhow, I'm sorry, I'm a man, I digress. I like driving a five-speed. Come now, verse 13, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. as it is you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know, when Julie and I got married, um, we sent out our wedding invitations and we had this family barbecue and uh, we did a really simple wedding invitations. Basically, this guy, this girl, this day, this place. And um, I, with a little RSVP and whatever. So I I distinctly remember because it irked me at the time, but doesn't so much anymore. Um, when I gave my grandparents a wedding invite, they gave the RSVP back with DV, which I think is Latin or Greek initials for Lord willing. And it irked me at the time because it just irked me because I was a lot younger and a lot more immature and they were actually, they were right actually. Lord willing, we will attend your wedding. Lord willing, your wedding is going to happen on September 21st. But really, that's the attitude that James tells us to have here. It's not that we're not to make plans. That's not it at all. That's not what he's saying. We're to commit our plans to the Lord. The psalmist says it really well. Trust in the Lord and do good do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as a light and your justice on the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. We're to commit our ways to the Lord. We're to seek him out. It's not that we're not to make plans. It's not that we're not to go about our commerce. It's not that we're not to plan for our retirement. It's not that we're not to pay our bills. It's not that it's a bad thing to to say, I want to move to this city. But have we actually sought the Lord in regards to that? And are we going with, he talks about arrogance. Are we talking, are we going out in a manner of, I am doing this, come hell or high water, Lord? Or are we going and making our plans? Lord, if you open these doors, I will go through them. This is the plan I believe you have laid out before me. I'm gonna step forward in it. Proverbs says, the plans of the heart belong to man, but the answers of the tongue is from the Lord. In all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit are intent. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. The Lord establishes our steps. So let's make plans. Let's ask the Lord for help in those plans. And may our plans, heart intent be to glorify God, not just ourselves. Let's live expectantly as we make our plans that Jesus may return any day. Or that the end of our days may come sooner than later, maybe before Jesus comes. 
But let's make, let's plan expectantly. Let's keep in mind what our lives are. He says that our lives are like, like a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. It reminds me when Paul talks about his life being poured out as a drink offering. The idea of a drink offering, like a, like a wine being poured out over a fire and an aromatic mist that comes off for a short period of time. That is not, our lives are not really long lasting. In the sight of eternity, we're, we're a blip on the radar screen. Just remember that God is God. Let's not be arrogant about our plans, but seek the Lord for help. Let's boast in Jesus Christ our hope and our salvation, not in our plans. And finally, he just puts the bow on this chapter. He talked about our sins of commission earlier, what we do with our hands and the thoughts of our minds. And he talks about sins of omission here in verse 17 at the end. For whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for it is sin. That's what he's saying. James finishes up the chapter with. If we know what the Lord has called us to do as revealed in his word, if we have sought him out, if he's laid something on our hearts to do that is in line with scripture, that we've prayed about, and we don't do it, that's sin as well. If we want to walk in the promises of God, that the devil will flee from us, that he, the Lord, will draw near to us. Let's keep short accounts with him. Let's ask for forgiveness. Submit ourselves. Be friends with God. Amen. Worship team, you guys want to come on up and close us in a song or two. Uh, Father, I thank you for your word this morning, Lord. That, uh, your word's always fresh, Lord. And I just thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for your great promises, Lord, that you will draw near unto us. And God, I just pray that you would help us to uh, not be short-sighted, but to always have for your glory in mind, Lord Jesus. We thank you for, your, for this time and your word in Jesus' name.